Exterior, the high desert, dawn. There's a large golden cross on a hill overlooking the town of Kanab, Utah. Don't look at it during sunrise, or the reflection of the sunlight off of it will blind you, which is what happened to Klaus Kinski the morning after he arrived in Kanab. Kinski was one of the first cast members of Cyber Cowboys to arrive in Kanab, which was unfortunate for a crew who wanted to make a good first impression when they arrived. Klaus Kinski was a longtime character actor with a resume filled with truly grotesque performances in numerous spaghetti westerns, and some of the greatest performances of all time in films like Fitzcarraldo and Nosferatu, Phantom der Nacht. He was also infamous for being more evil than an oil spill, just a true plague on everyone he encountered. His lifelong collaborator Werner Herzog once famously said, That boy is out his damn mind. Klaus Kinski thought he was Jesus Christ, and so he took extra offense when a gold cross rendered him blind for five minutes on the morning of September 1st, 1996. He woke up several other cast and crew by yelling at the top of his lungs, I am going to be as annoying as I possibly can today. This town will feel the wrath of Klaus Kinski. By the end of that night, Klaus Kinski would be dead. Klaus Kinski wasn't the only high-profile actor cast in Cyber Cowboys. Far from it. Everybody wanted to work with Denis Cantor on the most expensive movie of all time. Costner was already guaranteed the lead spot. Denis had loved working with him on Blood and Sand. But many other leading actors were willing to forego top billing just to be involved. Possibly most notable among them was the guy playing Costner's sidekick, Oscar winner Saturday Lewis. Saturday Lewis didn't take a lot of roles. He got offered a lot of them but he only selected highly difficult roles guaranteed to garner him critical acclaim. He starred in mega-hit biopics playing great roles like John F. Kennedy and later Lyndon Johnson before finally winning his Oscar in the 1993 film Ho Chi Minh. The roles were particularly demanding due to Saturday's intense preparation method. Now, please explain to the untrained, non-thespian audience, please explain to them, Saturday, what it means to be a method actor. Wrong you are, James Lipton. Method actor, I am not. Now, you may have noticed that in this interview, Saturday Lewis does seem to talk like Yoda. This is on purpose, and it's part of Saturday's anti-method, which we will allow Yoda to explain. Living as their character all the time, method actors do. To fully understand character, they hope. Yoda says, limited this is, with the anti-method, understand the character I do, by first understanding all the characters I am not. For example, play Latino Hamlet, I will soon. Live my life as Yoda, Babe Ruth, Mary Poppins. The Coneheads, and so on. Mm. Process of elimination. Elimination process of. So to clarify, when the cameras roll on Cyber Cowboys, Saturday will be portraying Rolando Netscape, gunslinging, web-surfing hotshot. But off-camera, depending on his mood, he speaks to the cast and crew as Louis Armstrong, Attila the Hun, Bob Woodward from All the President's Men, or Shredder from the Ninja Turtles. On the first day of shooting, a new documentary crew captured Saturday in character during an early spat with Kinski. I am blinded! Where are the fruit gushers? 
Swamping me, my gashes. I say, I say, everybody, look alive now. He jumpier than a June bug. We might have to hog time up, toss him in a bullap sack till he's all tuckered out. Enough of this. I am going into town to speak with the mayor. Get out of my way, girl. Kinski barged into someone that he probably should not have. The girl that he was referring to was Elena Rothschild. Elena, heir to the Rothschild fortune, would be playing the film's love interest, Cookies the Librarian. She was... Not good. This was her first role in a motion picture. The only other on-screen performance of hers we could find was a commercial for Raisin Bran. Mom, I don't want to eat this plain, boring Bran. What if I put raisins in it, darling? Doesn't that look delicious? Yes, Mom. Raisin Bran, a serving of raisins in every bite. Spice up your bran with raisins. Did she say sprice? Yeah, looks like that made it through. Damn. Elena had arrived on set with the first convoy of vehicles. Flanking her the entire time was a completely new documentary crew who had arrived overnight and volunteered to replace Werner Herzog. Little is known about this crew, other than that the men were all very strong, several had Israeli accents, and they all had a lot more guns than Werner Herzog's crew. After Kinski brushed into Elena, the crew deemed him a person of interest and followed him around for the rest of the day. Next, Kinski went to the prop department for a knife in case he had to stab anybody in town. That's where he met the weapons and demolition experts Stewie and Griffin. What's up, bro? You want a fucking knife or something? Yes, how did you know? Oh, we got so many knives, it's crazy. We're just giving them away. I'm making Stewie juggle them. Hey, Griffin, can I stop juggling these knives? No, dude. Look how much blood he has on him. Isn't that awesome? Armed with a knife, Klaus went into the town of Kanab in search of gushers and revenge. At this point, we should talk you through the town of Kanab and why Denis chose to film there. The people of Kanab have always said that the town had the spirit of movies beneath its soil. Kanab sits directly between the Grand Canyon and several other majestic national parks. Its proximity to natural wonders made it the perfect hub for Hollywood when they came looking for locations to shoot westerns and other epic films. Every Hollywood star had spent significant time in Kanab and they would always say Kanab was a wonderful place to stay as long as you didn't mess with the locals. So into Kanab, Klaus went, with the direct intention of messing with the locals. The first one he met was Meg Benedict, owner of the town's famous diner, The Nutrient Post. Attention, I'm a famous man, and I demand fruit gushers. We don't have gushers, dear. We have breakfast sausage. I spit. Best watch where you're spitting, son. People here love respect. And they hate disrespect. Next, Klaus barged into the sheriff's office, demanding a search warrant for possible gushers at the nutrient post. That was where he met Mayor of Kanab, Broyle Dunson, and the sheriff, Bobtail Nag. Well, howdy there, traveler. I am not a traveler. I am the son of man, the lamb of God, and an actor. Oh, an actor, huh? You must be here with... The movie. I was just remarking to Sheriff Nag that one of my most favorite things in the whole world is politeness. Nein! We must have order. We must find the gushers. I tell you what, partner. We was wondering a few things about your there movie production. And if you happen to tell us these things, well, 
We might be able to rustle you up a whole sack of gushers. Go on. We was wondering when the rest of the cash and crew will be arriving, and whether or not any of y'all had any, uh, foolish plans involving, uh, poking around the cave outside of town that, uh, no one is supposed to go into. Kinski ended up giving up all of this information, as well as a lot of other information they didn't ask for, such as where supplies were kept, weak spots on the camp's perimeter, and everybody on set's greatest strengths and weaknesses. Back on set, some more cast members were rolling out of bed. Perhaps the most excited out of all of them was Jason Callback. Jason Callback was a 19-year-old baby-faced stand-up comedian from Orlando, Florida. He gained notoriety after his amazing performance on The David Letterman Show. I was walking around the supermarket the other day, not to brag, and I was looking for the chip aisle, but my anxiety was too bad, so I just wandered around the market. Having anxiety is crazy. I feel like everything is a trap. It's like, who am I, you guys, Admiral Akbar? I know what you're thinking. A Star Wars reference, but he seemed like such a jock. Yeah, a jock with anxiety. Is that a thing? Anyway, I'm walking around the supermarket. Damn. Yeah, stand-up was really easy back then. Jason was cast as Spiffy St. Grenade, a demolitions expert who joins up to help Kevin Costner. And speaking of Kevin Costner, where was he? A second fleet of production vehicles was on its way to Utah. Costner was on it, along with other cast members like Steven Seagal and the villain of the film, Walter Matthau. Steven Seagal never talked in interviews about his involvement in Cyber Cowboys, except randomly on Russian state TV when he was on to talk about something else. Steven, you've been following the case of Edward Snowden very closely. How do you feel about leaking classified information? Information. I did a movie about information in the desert. One night, Billy Clientel appeared outside my 10th floor window and said, Steven, you could be in a great movie. But you have to make a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. I said, I will bring you an offering. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Costner's fleet of vehicles was late because Seagal had held them up in Las Vegas so that he could try to kill Siegfried and Roy and steal their tiger for a blood offering. Seagal was unsuccessful, but their tardiness set in motion a chain of events that would have drastic consequences. By the time they approached near Kanab, Word had spread rapidly of Kinski's antics. The townsfolk were upset. That afternoon, a mysterious radio broadcast went out. That was Take It Easy by the Eagles. Thank you for slithering on into the lizard hour with the lizard. I'm the lizard. It's a steamy 94 here in Kanab. Folks, you may have seen some new arrivals here in town. They're from Hollywood, and they're here to shoot a western. Some of them have been sticking their pronged tongues under the wrong rocks, but hey... In Kanab, we're known for our hospitality. Up next, we got Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue. But first, a message from the station. The man holds the knife. Reach into the beehive. The bubble bath is overflowing. The man holds the knife. Reach into the beehive. The bubble bath is overflowing. 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 An hour later, Denis got a strange phone call. 
Hey, uh, Denis, it's me, uh, Kevin Costner. I'm ashamed to admit this, but I think we're under attack. Yeah, uh, a bunch of guys wearing tribal head masks rode in on horses and just started giving us the business. Uh, Steven's got his katana, he's swinging it at him. Oh no, they just took it right out of his hands. Yeah. yeah holy shit, Walter Matthau just punched one of their horses in the head. Oh my god, I think he killed it. Oh man, they're riding off with our stuff. They got our food and supplies and all my DVDs. Screw it, I'm gonna get on the horse and fight these guys. Oh man, the horse threw me off immediately. I think I got my head on a rock. Got my bell rung pretty good. Uh, who is this? Who am I talking to? What's going on? Are we under attack? Steve, Steven, hey Steven. Steven Seagal, it's me, Kevin. What are we doing out here? Where are you going? Well, I don't know where I'm going. The mysterious attackers came out of the desert on horseback, stole equipment, DVDs, food, anything that wasn't bolted down, and vanished back into the sands. Production hadn't even started, and the star of the movie had already been seriously concussed. This is a pretty inauspicious start. As day ones of production go, you'd think it couldn't get much worse. But it would. Oh boy, it certainly would. Hello listeners, has this ever happened to you? Have you ever recorded 115 pages of a scripted comedy podcast oh, Jesus Christ. and done, I don't know, 30 voices, each of which are physically taxing and mentally harmful in their own ways? Nate, yes, I have. No, you haven't. You do one voice. But whether you do 30 or one, you'll appreciate today's sponsor of A Closer Look, the Shure SM57 microphone. I have apologized time and again. Me and Will really wanted to zhuzh it up for this season and improve the audio quality. So I gave Will $500 to buy new microphones so we could sound even better than we did in season one. And I found a really good deal from a guy at a farmer's market. That wasn't a farmer's market. They don't do farmer's markets at gas stations. Will gave a man $500 for two microphones that, how did he phrase it, Will? That were the same ones they use in the WWE. He gave them to me for only $100, which is a good deal. And what, pray tell, did you do with the other $400? The guy said that for $500 total, he would give me the microphones and two jars of voice potion that makes you sing really good. We tried the voice potion. And would you believe me if I told you that the drink was Caribou Lou? Like from the Tech 9 song Caribou Lou. Yeah, but didn't we have a good night? Didn't we get hammered? Didn't we play one-on-one -on -one rugby? Yeah, we did, and it was fun, but the $10 microphone sucked. And we had to re-record 115 pages of dialogue, and that's why this is four months late. So go out there and buy the... What are these called? The Shure SM57, which you can find at Guitar Center, or hell, any other store. Back on set, Denis was extremely alarmed by the mystery raid. Pearl, get your shotgun. I want all the stars' trailers arranged in a circle. Denis was acting like a general, rallying his troops in preparation for another attack. Move the Alabama Brigade's cannons up on the ridge. We will stand our ground until General Longstreet relieves us. 
Standing next to him was Saturday Lewis, who was acting like a Civil War general at that point in the day. The documentary crew also caught a conversation Klaus Kinski was having nearby. Those are gushers on the trucks that got robbed. I can help you with those gushers. Wait, who are you? You are extremely handsome. Name's Billy Clientel, agent extraordinaire. I represent your co-star, Susie Short. Greet the gentleman, Susie. Howdy. I do declare I loved Aguirre, the wrath of God. We have to interrupt to introduce two pivotal figures who have just arrived. The timid Southern Belle is Susie Short. Susie was a totally unknown actress who had risen to stardom almost overnight after being discovered at a crossroads in the rural South by her agent. Her agent was Billy Clientel. Billy Clientel represented a lot of budding stars, people like Bobby Cactus, Maria Dilbert, Greg Greg Stofferson. You haven't heard of any of these people because they all died the day before their 28th birthday, all within 6 to 12 months of rising to stardom. Susie Short is 27. Billy Clientel had been representing young stars for a long time. A long time. No one knows just how old Billy Clientel is. He was supposedly born in June of 66, but we found some puzzling things into our research into him. A legal contract between RKO and a new Western actor named Coulter Holmstead was signed in 1939 with one William Clientel as the witness. At the MGM archive, we found a photo from a huge studio party with stars like Gary Cooper, Greta Garbo, Lillian Gish, and, standing in the front, smiling, with his right arm up and his left arm down, is a man who looks exactly like Billy Clientel. The photo is from 1921. Also, he signed the Declaration of Independence, or someone named Billy Clientel did, from Delaware. Billy was a strange-looking man. He had a tuft of California surfer blonde hair, but a very pointy jet-black goatee. Sometimes, in his pant leg, you can make out what appears to be a long red tail with a point. And sometimes in the footage, he uh, sort of floats off the ground. Now, I am not a religious man. I am. So it's not easy for me to admit that Billy Clientel is the devil. Yeah, we're pretty sure he's the devil. Sadly, we couldn't reach Billy Clientel for comment on his role in the production of Cyber Cowboys, since he allegedly was on that Malaysian plane that disappeared. When Billy Clientel arrived on set, the first thing he did was strike up a conversation with Klaus Kinski which we can faintly hear in the background of the documentary footage. Damn that Jeb Stewart taking all my cavalry on one of his raids. Hey, Mr. Kinski, have you noticed that the people of Kanab seem awfully reluctant about handing out their gushers? They also seem pretty protective of those caves outside of town. Now, I'm no mathematician, but can you put two and two together for me, Klausy boy? There must be a vending machine in the cave. Wow, I never would have thought of that. Only one way to find out. You better go now, and don't tell no one, because they might want some of your gushers. Can I trust you? Your secrets are always safe with Billy Clientel. And with that, Susie and Billy climb into the red seats of Billy's black Corvette and drive somewhere. After Denis made an urgent demand to have more security... Pearl reached out to an old friend who lived in the rough side of St. George, Utah. Three hours later, the echoes of motorcycles could be heard throughout the Cyber Cowboys camp. Fifty men dismounted Harleys, all wearing leather jackets. On those leather jackets, a matching patch which bore the symbol of the infamous biker gang, the Rob Zombies. 
That was our name, because we would rob anybody, even a zombie. The man speaking to the camera is Michael Chicklets, who was the leader of this group that arrived in Kanab. The Rob Zombies made the Hells Angels look like the Heaven's Devils. Their original chapter made a fortune in 1985, selling the only remaining supply of quaaludes to children across Florida. With plenty of bikers looking to get in on the action, chapters popped up all across the country. And the St. George, Utah chapter was by far the most hapless. Yeah, one time a traveling circus came to town and we stole all their fucking monkeys. What did you do with them? Oh, nothing. They got out, man. They figured out how to work together, and they took six of our bikes, but people in St. George knew not to fuck with us. What did you do yesterday when you arrived on set? Well, Denis was really worried about somebody infiltrating the camp, so I decided to start tattooing the letter F on everybody's lower back because F stood for friend. I tattooed one guy, and he pointed out that F could also stand for foe, and then I got all turned around, and we just ended up doing laps around the town, and we tried to look intimidating. But a bunch of us ran out of gas, and luckily we met a really cool guy who let us crash in his museum for a bit. The man he's referring to is Colt Winchester, and the museum he owned was the Kanab Museum of Western Film History. We were able to speak with Colt, and he's awesome. He fucking rules. Yeah, Nate and Colt really hit it off. Do you remember anything that happened on the day of the robbery? I remember seeing old Nick Benedict carrying bags of lobster, champagne, and crates of gushers into her diner. Interesting. Do you think... And you were the proprietor of a museum that I wanted to go to for a long time. Is that correct? Yes. I've been the proprietor of the Kanab Museum of Western Film History since 1979. How did you fit in with the locals? I don't think the people of Kanab ever took much of a liking to me, being that I wasn't born there. 1979, you must have obtained a lot of items over the years. Well, yes, I have. Uh, Colt, can you expand on... What items do you have? Can you give me, like, five examples? Well, I have the outhouse from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Fuck off, really? Damn. Oh, yeah, is that the Emilio Estevez movie? (laughs) No. Sam Peckinpah. Doy, what else? I have a directing chair that John Ford sat in when he was in Kanab making She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Wow, that's crazy. Now, now, did you notice anything strange? Can you give me your Mount Rushmore of John Ford movies? I don't know the other three, but Wagon Master has to be in there. Wagon Master is his most underrated film. It so is. It's so good. Give me your number one on three. One, two, How How Green Green Was My my Valley. Valley. Tombstone. Yes, John Ford directed Tombstone when he was 110. Really? No, dude, he died in the 70s. Oh, all right. Uh, Colt, uh, did you see Klaus Kinski? I didn't see him that night, but... I do have one of the jackets he wore in The Great Silence. That's the best spaghetti western. It is. It is. Do you have a letterbox? Can you shoot me some deep cut Rex? That went on for about an hour. We didn't get anything useful from that interview. But isn't he awesome? Colt Winchester is a very important part of this story. We talked to him for over 40 hours, and two of those hours were useful. I found them all to be useful. And he sent me some old Delmer Dave's DVDs. 
The chaos brought on by the arrival of the Rob Zombies immediately ceased when Denis got on the loudspeaker and made an announcement. Pardon me, artists and laborers alike. I have an important announcement. I see you are all very busy. Hey, listen the fuck up, God damn it! <laughs> I would like it very much if we could put this fracas behind us and come together for a feast tonight to welcome true royalty in our field as he joins our humble cast, Mr. Marlon Brando. Nobody expected a 72-year-old Marlon Brando to work at all, let alone travel deep into the desert. Brando is known for being a bit of a wild card. He famously showed up to the production of Apocalypse Now 100 pounds overweight and did not know any of his lines. Frank Castle mentioned this during pre-production, but Denis quelled Frank's fears by saying, no way that happens again. And wouldn't you know it, it happened again. Brando showed up having gained 50 pounds in three months, had not read the script, and thought he was doing a voiceover role for Toy Story 2. Right behind Brando was the beaten and battered convoy of Costner, Mathau, and Seagal. Having been violently attacked only a few hours prior, they desperately needed medical attention. Instead, they were told to dress for a black tie event in a dimly lit giant tent. Later that night, 150 people packed into the dining tent where Denis officially welcomed them to the production. Just as he was about to give a speech, Kevin Costner arrived for the second time, having forgotten that he had already arrived a few hours earlier. He told Denis how excited he was to get off the damn road while wearing a robe and slippers that he had put on in his trailer. Yes, thank you, Kevin. Welcome, mes amis, to Cyber Cowboys, which is not just a movie, but a world in which you will all have the pleasure of being subjected to over the next, I don't know, X amount of weeks. This is a grand vision that many of you have only been granted a fractional glimpse of. Allow me to bring you all into the light. Cyber Cowboys is... At this point, Denis begins walking around the tent, patting people on the head like a kindergarten teacher as he goes. The story of Bookman, a family man who kept a large library on his land until his family was murdered and all of his information was stolen, rendering him an outlaw. He, of course, will be played by Kevin. At this moment, Denis pats Costner on the head and Costner immediately passes out. Having lost everything, Bookman is forced to travel the barren wasteland that is Neo-America, which is a world where technology has rendered the government incredibly powerful while making most of its citizens illiterate. The government hoards all of the information as the rest of society spirals backwards into the 19th century, which brings us to the Old West. Through Bookman we learn that pieces of information written on scraps of paper that act as currency are known as slips, and people are willing to kill for them. Drunk in a saloon one day, Bookman is approached by Rolando Netscape, who will be played by Saturday Lewis. Netscape tells Bookman about a plan to rob the government's largest stash of information, the internet train. The internet lives on a constantly moving train that is miles long 
and expands upward into a complete functioning city hundreds of feet tall. This city is guarded by the Master Chief, an intimidating heavy played by none other than Marlon Brando. Wait, this isn't Toy Story? I thought this was Toy Story 2. The Master Chief and his army of android women fighters called Cortanas protect the mayor of Infotrain, Mayor Lancelot. A sadistic, murderous psychopath prone to outbursts and screaming fits. He will be played by Walter Matthau. I'm really delighted to be here. This seems like a lot of fun, and I can't wait to learn all of your names. Rolando Netscape forms a posse with Bookman, featuring a demolition man played by Jason Callback, a stunning librarian played by Elena Rothschild, a renegade Cortana played by Susie Short, a train mechanic played by Klaus Kinski, and Steven Seagal, who plays a gunman with a secret. Where is Klaus? Anybody seen Klaus? Nobody had seen Klaus for a few hours, and nobody would see him until the next morning, as Walter Matthau later put it. Well, we figured Klaus had just gone to a gas station to buy candy. He was always eating sour gummy worms, gushers, those rings that taste like peaches. What are they called? Peach rings. Of course. Denis and the cast and the massive crew and the Rob Zombies split the lobsters and wine that hadn't been stolen and managed to have a pretty fun night. They were all in bed by 12. The next morning, Walter was the first one to wake up. The sunlight reflecting off of Canav's golden cross pierced his room. Walter stepped outside to get a better look at this cross, then immediately screamed and fell to the ground. Someone was on the cross. He had been crucified. He was dead. It was Klaus Kinski. Next time on A Closer Look.